All right, you guys, I think we're going to get started. Um, if people are still working their way over, um, they can work their way over. But I think the majority of us are in here that are going to be here. So I'm just going to go ahead and start. Um, my desire is to, is to give a kind of a 30,000-foot view of answering the unbeliever, whether it's, like I said in there, outside of the church or even the unbelief that we deal with just as Christians. If we're honest, all of us come in with levels of doubt that some of us might not be comfortable expressing. Um, I know I was personally, especially in the younger years of my faith journey with Jesus. So um, this topic is something that is odd for, for me to talk about because it both, um, on one hand, it fires me up. Like talking about sharing the gospel with people who need to know about our God, what Jesus has done for us, that fires me up. And at the same time, it also terrifies me. Can anybody relate with that side of things, right? Like you go into the topic about sharing the story of what Jesus has done in your life with family or friends or strangers and intimidation comes and often the result is silence. I don't know what to say. What if they ask me a question I don't know the answer to? I'll feel dumb, I'll look dumb. So therefore, uh, we don't say anything. Or maybe some of you come in here thinking, like me, that evangelism is a topic um, for the like SEAL Team 6 of Christians. They are confident, they're the evangelists, they're bold, they're not scared of anything. And yet, that perspective that often disengages a lot of Christians from, from evangelizing, from sharing their faith, from answering the unbeliever, that perspective is also not true. It's not biblical. Um, and so my desire this morning is to give you guys a confidence in the simplicity of what Scripture says. My hope is that your confidence would be firmly rooted and established upon what God has spoken and that you would be more assured walking into otherwise maybe scary or intimidating conversations, okay? What I want to do is have about 10 minutes at the end, 5 to 10 minutes for questions that you might have. It could be asking anything, um, you can even ask for a friend, even if that friend is secretly you. Um, we can do that at the end. So um, here's, here's what we're going to do. We're going to work through uh, what it means um, to talk about apologetics. Apologetics is merely knowing what we believe, why we believe it, and being able to communicate that to others effectively. Apologetics. We use that word. It comes from a Greek word, apologia, which means to give a defense for the truth claims that you're making. It's kind of a legal term, that you're kind of giving uh, truthful claims about the trustworthiness of what you're stating. So apologetics in a Christian sense is merely knowing what we believe, why we believe it, and being able to communicate that to others effectively. And I would add to that definition from Vody Bauckham, to do it with tact, with humility, with a attitude where we're quick to listen, we're slow to speak, and we're slow to anger. I don't know if you've heard the statement that we've been given by God two ears and one mouth so that we could be twice as quick to listen as we are to speak. That's helpful in talking with people about anything, but especially about who God is and what he's done to rescue people like us, rebels like us. And so knowing what the working definition is helps us to therefore dive into what, is, what does the Bible say about it? Because 
the Christian worldview, how we view the world. That's what a worldview is. Every one of us comes in with a way that we view the world that we live in, okay? The Christian worldview could be, um, could be illustrated by, imagine this Bible in my hand as a pair of glasses. The way that I look through these glasses is the way that I understand truth. It's the way that I understand things that are false, claims that are uh, true about God and who he is, and claims that are not true about God or the lack of existence of God. And so we have a biblical worldview. The Christian worldview is a biblical worldview. And the command to defend the Bible comes from the Bible itself. Therefore, the Bible commands us to do apologetics, and it tells us how to do it. 1 Peter 3.15 says it this way. But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense. There's our word. In the Greek, it's apologia. To make a defense is the word apologia. To everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. What's the priority of this passage? What do you guys see here as the priority, the command here? What's, what's some feedback? What is it? Make a defense. That's one of them. That's actually not the first priority. There's another priority that comes before it. And a lot of, a lot of us, myself included, would look at this and say, yeah, to make a defense, that's the first priority. But actually, the first priority, according to this verse, is to sanctify Christ as Lord. What does that mean? Sanctify means to set apart. Christ as Lord means that he is in control of everything right now, and he already has been forever. And so he will be forevermore. So the, the confidence that we have in that is Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20. We know it as the Great Commission. Jesus in that passage says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go and make disciples. Some of us live as though Jesus said, all authority will be given to me one day when I return. And because we kind of live that way, that Jesus one day will establish his kingdom, that we kind of live in this way where we're timid to live as Jesus, um, as though Jesus is in control and that he's in charge now. That verse tells us that Jesus is the Lord of lords. He's the king of kings. He is the king of presidents. He is over every ruler, every dictator that has ever been, that will ever be until he physically returns on the earth. Right now, Christians are called to live with this mentality that Jesus is already in, in control. He's already reigning from heaven, and therefore we can have confidence wherever we're at, whatever we're talking about. The big deal about this verse is the context in which it was written. So some of us will look at this verse and say, okay, um, how does this apply to me? We got to go back to the context of the original audience. The original audience in Peter's day were living as Christians, this new sect of belief about Jesus as the Son of God, that a lot of Greco-Romans in their world believed that Christians were actually atheists because they didn't believe in all the various gods that Greco-Roman culture believed in, Thor and Zeus and Hermes and all these different pantheon of gods, they heard about Christians saying, no, no, there's no God but one, and he sent his son. And unless you repent and trust him, you're left 
uh, in your sins, and you're going to be judged. You're going to be cast away from the presence of God unless you turn to Jesus for forgiveness of your sins. The reality of that happening and Christians speaking that message, do you think it was well-received? No, because in that society, the practice that was common was not just uh, polytheism, but it was rampant sexual immorality. It was rampant um, celebration of um, gnarly, grotesque stuff. Like orgies were a normal thing in that culture. Like you didn't participate in the society of your day unless you participated in some of these religious activities that were very pagan, they were very godless, and yet they were spoken of as though uh, they were the highest good. And so Christians in that day would be mocked, they would be made fun of, they would be outcast from the way of life and the society in which they were trying to function. So they lost prestige, they lost uh, reputation status, they lost respect. And the reality was that a lot of people that weren't Christians were asking them, why is there hope still in you? Enter in this verse. Give a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that's in you. Now, I bring up all that background, not just to tell you a good history lesson, but to tell you the history lesson that often repeats itself. Can you relate to a culture that is steeped into sexual immorality, that celebrates it as radical individualism, as the highest good for whatever feels good, we just do it. If you were to talk to a fish and, and fish could talk back, and you were to ask the fish, what's it like to, to live in water? The fish would look at you and say, what's water? In the same way, we as Westerners live in a culture that we can't even distinguish a lot of times the fact that we're living in it, we're seeped in it. We don't even recognize, man, we're just seeped in untruth and, and flat out lies that are celebrated as though they're true. Until we read God's word, it becomes this pungent um, awakening of sorts. You guys ever seen smelling salts when somebody passes out, like at a medical scene? Um, sometimes the medics will come and break open smelling salts to an unconscious person. And what happens is pretty fascinating uh, for us that are observing. It's pretty offensive for the person that's uh, the recipient of the smelling salts because what's happening is they're actually smelling these salts that immediately bring them to consciousness. Like it wakes them up from their sleep. What the Bible does is essentially brings the smelling salts to every single one of us. It wakes us up to the reality of what's going on. And so when we seek to make a defense, a lot of times we're actually bringing in some pungent truth to an otherwise sleeping society that we're living in. And a lot of us kind of backtrack because there's tension in those types of conversations, right? If we're honest, who likes to sign up to uh, have a tense, filled conversation with somebody? But yet, God's word doesn't let us off the hook. God's word calls us into living with Jesus as Lord and therefore telling others about what he's done in our life and what he's done to rescue them as well. That's what we're talking about. And in the process, there's a lot of unbelief that's unmasked, that's exposed, a lot of challenges to the Christian worldview. So everything we do, everything we reason about is dictated by Christ's lordship. Because Jesus is in control, we move and exist. And so we're called to enter into conversations that matter, not with this sense of arrogance or overconfidence, but with this sense of, gentleness and reverence. 
oftentimes Christians are characterized uh, by being people that just don't care. They're just cold, calloused, bold, and brash, and they seem unloving. That's our um, accusation a lot of times. And therefore, we don't engage in the conversation that we need to. And so what God's word actually tells us is to have these conversations with gentleness and reverence or respect. That's crucial, especially to some of my maybe overly confident high school guy friends in here. Um, God's word tells us that there's this natural kind of arrogance that we have when we're young, especially men. Like some of us might be coming into an apologetic seminar like this, feeling like, man, I just want to have some more ammo in my uh, proverbial gun when I'm going to battle against other people so I can win arguments. Our goal as Christians is not to win the argument. Our goal as Christians is to win the soul. Now, arguments and winning arguments and taking arguments captive to the obedience of the truth of Jesus, that's part of it. But the proverb says, he who wins souls is wise. So we want to live out this biblical worldview. We want to do it the way God calls us to. And so here's some of the pushback that I've often got, and maybe you have too. And I want to walk through a couple of practical ways to deal with this unbelief, this resistance to the truth of what God's already said. Anybody hear this excuse before? I don't believe the Bible. I don't believe it. I just think that it was made up. Wasn't the Bible just made up to control people? Um, Nietzsche said years and years and years ago that religion is the opiate of the masses, meaning it keeps people under control. You might have heard that before, and maybe you're convinced, maybe that's true coming in here today. God's just a fairy tale. Why do you believe in fairy tales? Maybe some of you heard, I'm spiritual, but not religious. Anyone hear that one before? Uh, Or I don't believe in God, I believe in science. I'm sure a lot of us hear that. The irony is that science is a synonym for the word knowledge. The irony is that without God, we don't have the ability to do science. In other words, God is the necessary foundation upon which we can know things at all. In fact, there's a verse right here in Psalm 36, 9, where it says, For with you is the fountain of life. In your light, we see light. That's not just for Christians. That's for all creation. That's for all people of all times and all cultures. Because God is, we see. Because God is a logical God, reasonable, full of wisdom, we therefore reflect his image being in his image. No matter whether we believe in Jesus or not, we are all in the image of God, and we all are able to understand the world as he made it to a certain degree. So, Maybe you've heard this, and this is a famous song uh, when the passage of, uh, of gay marriage happened in um, uh, 2015, 16. Macklemore wrote a song that basically sought to undermine the authority of the Bible by saying this little quick line. We paraphrase a book written 3,500 years ago. It comes in various forms. The challenge is to our trust in the authority, the trustworthiness, the the. Um, the solid foundation of God's word, uh, the challenge to that comes in various forms. This is one of many. And so it's a various form of the ancient um, uh, encounter that our first parents had in the garden with the enemy where he said, did God really say? Right? It's this question that left unaddressed can become a doubt. That left unaddressed can become unbelief. 
that left unaddressed can become a departure from the faith. And so we're talking about these things, and a good question to ask the person who makes statements like this is, and I'm going to give you two just practical questions that will help you in conversation with people. Um, one question, and it can come in various forms, is this. Okay, let's take one for example. Um, God's just a fairy tale. Okay, you, you, just, you just said a statement. That's interesting. How did you come to that conclusion? Or what makes you think that? When you do that, you're putting the spotlight from yourself to make a defense upon the person who makes a statement. Now, a lot of times these phrases will come up because we've heard them before and we just regurgitate them without critically thinking through them. What happens when we actually challenge the person who says this is that the spotlight is on them to defend their position. Nine times out of 10, what I've experienced is that the person that's challenged when they say, hey, God's just a fairy tale. I don't believe in fairy tales. And I look at them and say, man, what led you to that conclusion? I'm, I'm interested to hear your, your thought process to believe that. Nine times out of 10, they're like, ah, well, and then they try to change the subject because it's uncomfortable to be challenged in your worldview. What happens, though, is that we get to shine the spotlight on what they're standing on. What they're standing on, if they reject God, is not a solid foundation. It's sand. I would say it's sinking sand. Jesus says, those who hear my words and don't obey them are like those who build their house on the sand. It's going to ultimately be destroyed. But those who hear my words and build upon them are like those who build their house on the rock. The trials of life will come, but they're going to stand firm because they trusted in truth. And so we get to highlight what they believe and show for a second that they're standing either on sinking sand or a ground that is super unstable. Case in point. I get an opportunity to go into local business in Fresno and be kind of a chaplain. I get to go and just ask employees, hey, how can I pray for you? What's going on? You guys have any needs? Here's some book. You know, have you ever read the Bible? Here's the Bible. It's a great opportunity. The uh, business owner is a Christian. He's like, man, let's get in here. This is God's business. Let's see people come to faith in Jesus. And so inevitably, I'm going to encounter people like this guy I encountered uh, last month who's not a Christian. A few months ago, I talked to him. He admitted that he's an atheist. Now, a few months passed. I'm talking to him last month. I'm like, hey, just wanted to know if there's anything I could pray for you about. And he looks at me. He's like, no, I, I don't believe that there's a God. And I looked at him and I said, man, I just don't have enough faith to be an atheist, which is fun to say because it kind of stumps the person who thinks they're not living by faith. They think they're living by facts and science to actually challenge that worldview. So for a second, I got to shine the light on, their, on his um, weak foundation that he's trying to build his life on. And I, I continued with the conversation by saying, look, to believe as atheists believe that there's no God and therefore we, all we are is time and chance acting on matter. And therefore we are able to have an intelligible conversation where I'm looking at you in the eyes right now. You're understanding what I'm saying. I'm understanding what you're saying. I don't have enough faith to be an atheist. His response to that was, huh, now, I don't know everything behind that, huh? But I know at least for a second, the spotlight was shined on his assumptions of life and truth and his worldview to show that it's deeply lacking at best. We had a continued conversation and it was good and we continue to have conversation as I see him. But that's what we're talking about here. And so one good question is, how, how'd you come to that conclusion? 
Um, one other good question is this. When you see them struggle to articulate why they made the statement, bring in this question. If Christianity were true, would you become a Christian? Asking that question, which is a question that Frank Turek, who also writes the book, I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist, very powerful uh, defender of the faith, he asks that question. And what I've seen done when I ask that question to somebody who's giving me excuse after excuse of why they don't believe God, why don't they believe in the Bible, is that there, uh, a lot of times there will be a hesitation in answering the question. So if I ask them, if Christianity were true, would you become a Christian? If there's any level of hesitation, 90% of the time, that's an indicator that their reason for unbelief is not based on evidence or lack of evidence about God. Their reason for unbelief is because they don't want God to exist. So I'm having the conversation with this atheist a couple weeks back, and I'm like, look, our problem in life is that we know God exists, but we don't want him to reign over us. We want to be God instead of submit to the God that we already know exists. That's our problem. And the reason for it, the Bible says, is because we love our sin. To which he was like, huh. So those types of conversations get the ball rolling. They get the opportunity ultimately not to try to spend countless hours to convince the professing atheist that there is a God. Look, a lot of us think that effective... Um, uh, engagement with unbelievers is just simply convincing them that there is a God. Man, I got this person to believe that there's a God, and they didn't believe in a God. That's not success, and we'll see why biblically here in a minute. Success for the Christian is to point them to Christ, is to share the gospel with them. Romans 1.16 says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes our hope in salvation for people is that we would point them to Jesus, the only Savior of our souls. And so um, a lot of times when we get pushback, like uh, we talk about some of these questions, there's a temptation for a lot of Christians. Uh, for example, when I get pushback by somebody saying, oh, I don't believe the Bible, so stop using it, stop quoting it. I know that there's a lot of Christians, myself previously included, that are tempted to then say, oh, okay, well, if you don't believe in the Bible, then I'm going to put the Bible aside. You know what that's like? Imagine two knights coming to battle, old school knights. They come to battle. The first knight gets off his horse, takes out his sword of the sheath, and looks at the second knight, who also dismounts and looks at knight number one with no sword in his sheath, looks at knight number one and says, I don't believe in thine sword. Now, knight number one has two options. He can either stand there and start arguing why swords exist and they're powerful. He could put his sword back in its sheath and try to convince knight number two, who professes unbelief in the power of the sword, why he should believe in the power of the sword. He could do that. Or there's another option, which is what? Use the sword. Knight number two is going to be convinced instantly of the power and effectiveness of the sword. A lot of Christians will take our most powerful weapon, which is the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, Ephesians 6 tells us. 
uh, Hebrews 4.12 tells us that the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It's able to judge the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. A lot of Christians will say, oh, you don't believe in it? Okay, well, I'll put it down. I've stopped doing that because God's word is true whether or not the person I'm talking to will affirm it. And so even in conversation, some things will be brought up like, um, yeah, I don't believe that. So why are you using the Bible? I already told you I don't believe it. To which I can say, yeah, you've told me that, and I know that you don't believe in my presuppositions that the Bible is true, that it's the Word of God, but I also don't believe in your presuppositions. So we're going to argue right now and see that your presuppositions can't hold water to the authority of God's truth. And so you do it with gentleness and respect, but you do it firmly and confidently, defending your position as a believer in the authority of what God's already said. That's some of the ways that we engage with people who profess unbelief. Now, here's a level of confidence that we can have. I kind of hinted at this before. Some of us are tempted to go down the rabbit hole with a person that professes that they're an atheist. I don't believe God exists. I believe God's a fairy tale. It's not it's just made, I believe in science. And we try to go down that trail with them for hours. We can spend time, wasted time, precious time, that gets away from presenting the gospel to them. We can try to argue that there is a God. Now, let me show you why we can have confidence as Christians that the professing unbeliever actually is, is knowledgeable. They already have sufficient knowledge that God exists. Romans 1, verses 18 through 21. This section of God's word gives us universal insight into the condition of mankind. When we come across unbelievers, we don't need to sit there for hours to try to convince them that God exists. He's already made it evident to them. Look at these underlined phrases to see what I mean. Verse 18, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Truth is already given. It's not a matter of lack of evidence that they need to believe that God exists. It's a matter of them suppressing the truth God's already given them. Does that make sense? God's already given them the truth. Our issue, every one of our issues is that we suppress that truth. We sit on it. We try to hide it because that which is known about God is evident within them. For God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power, and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. At the end of the day, there's going to be no one coming before God saying, I just didn't have enough evidence to believe that you existed. This is not fair. According to the word of God, he has given each of us, no matter which culture, which continent, which time frame we've lived in, He's given each of us sufficient knowledge that he exists through what he's made. We know that he's eternal and powerful. A building demands that there was a builder. Creation demands that there was a creator. It's as simple as that in talking to professed unbelievers. Um, but to get them back on track, to get to the gospel is the goal. And so we're engaging in worldview conflicts, the Christian worldview or philosophy of life and the non-Christian worldview or unbelieving philosophy of life. Now, it's here that we're kind of caught in a corner when conflict arises because we live in a culture that upholds the 11th commandment. Any of you know what the 11th commandment is? Thou shall be nice. We live in a culture that idolizes the 11th commandment and the, the, the sense that you're not being nice, that there's a tense conversation, people back away from it. 
ourselves included. The problem with the 11th commandment is what? It doesn't exist. It's not in the Bible. But we live as though God has said that. And yet we're called to engage in this um, sometimes tense conversation that causes us to kind of be caught in a corner. So when we're challenged with proceeding, when somebody says, I don't believe God exists, do we believe what the unbeliever says about himself? Or do we believe what God says about the unbeliever? That's the corner that we're caught in. Are we going to believe what God has said about the professing unbeliever? Or are we going to believe the words coming out of the unbeliever's mouth? Biblically defined, Psalm 14.1 says that the fool says in his heart there is no God. So it's an issue of foolishness. It's an issue of suppressing the truth. And here's the deal. When we have good conversations with people, it's not just our words that we depend on to change a person. There's a power source that is unseen that is at work in every heart of people that we engage with the gospel. The proof of that is Jesus' words in John 16, 8. And he, when he comes, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. There's been many times that I've had conversations with unbelievers um, that I don't see any effects. I don't see anything changing about them. I've very rarely seen people like repent right there and there, right then and there, with tears saying, Man, I want to get baptized. Actually, oddly enough, this happened about a month ago. I was talking to a guy, 45-minute conversation. He's like, this is amazing. I want, to get, I want to get baptized. I want to give that a try. I'm like, well, you don't really give it a try. We'll have a further conversation about that. But I get to see a little bit of the effects of what the Holy Spirit's doing in this guy in the conversation. It was great. But typically, that doesn't happen. Because you don't see the effects of God working in the moment doesn't mean you're being ineffective. Keep being faithful. God is faithful and at work in the people's lives that we're talking with. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. That's the two uh, groups of people that exist in, on the planet. The fool and the person who's wise. And the, the linchpin, what it hinges on, is whether we fear the Lord or despise him. Fearing the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, of knowledge. To reject him is to embrace foolishness. Colossians 2.3 says that in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And so you might be coming in here thinking, man, I, yeah, I have opportunities to talk with people who don't believe, and I don't know exactly how to defend the faith. And, but maybe some of you are in here like, dude, I'm up at camp, and I'm not a Christian yet. I got to talk to a professed atheist a couple weeks ago right here afterwards. I was so grateful that he was honest enough to share with me. He doesn't believe yet but he's searching, he's seeking. I'm like, man, that's awesome. Thank you for talking with me. But here's the deal. Christianity Today wrote an article in 2019 that says something interesting. Over 70% of church-going high schoolers report having serious doubts about faith. Sadly, less than half of those young people shared their doubts and struggles with an adult or friend. Yet, these students' opportunities to express and explore their doubts were actually correlated with greater faith maturity. In other words, it's not doubt that's toxic to faith. It's silence. Some of you might be coming in here today with questions where you're like, I don't feel like I should even ask this. I don't know if I'm in a safe like group of people where I can actually express my doubts. I want people to think that I'm further along or more mature than I am. Let me just encourage you. Um, none of us is at the place where we should be. We're all far from perfection and part of the process of growing 
as Christians is asking the hard questions. And so with that, I would love to open it up. If you have any questions in a few remaining minutes, I would love to hear it. I think we have a mic. Nolan, do we not have a mic? Okay. So if you have a question, ask it loud. Any questions? I know the first person to ask a question is always the hardest, so let's just skip right to the second person. Second person who's got a question. Anybody have a question? Yeah. Yeah, great question. How can they be effective with what they know if they don't feel like they have the answers? Um, that happens all the time. And honestly, coming into a seminar for 30 minutes is not going to do the work of training you where you're like, all right, I'm ready to go. I got all the answers to all the questions that I ever have. You know, This is going to hopefully scratch the surface and, and start the conversation with people who you care about. To start the conversation could be as simple as asking them, hey, what do you think about Jesus? I was just at a camp that talked a lot about Jesus. What are your thoughts on him? I like the direct approach. There's a thousand ways to get to Jesus. There's a thousand conversation starters to talk about Jesus. Um, when you start the conversation about Jesus, there are going to be questions that you'll probably not be able to answer. The most respect that I've been able to give to another person that asks me a question that I can't answer is not to try to make up an answer to sound smart, but to humble myself and say, look, that's a good question. I don't have the answer, but do you mind if we follow up on that? Like, I want to look into it and get back to you. So whether it's a stranger, like, hey, can I get your email or whatever? Like, I'd love to follow up with you. That's a great question. I've never been challenged like that before. I'd like to know for myself. Can I, can I follow up with you on the answer on that? That's a great way that I've found that helps to honor the person, their questions, and to help equip us better. Great question. Anything else? Yeah. Great question. What about people of other faiths that also claim to be the truth? that also claim to have the way to God. How do you as a Christian who has the authoritative word of God that is like Mount Everest in comparison to all other truth claims about ways to God, it's like Mount Everest compared to mole hills, like little mounds of dirt that claim, oh yeah, our way is also a way to God. How do you engage with them? How do you effectively talk with them? At the bottom line, at the bottom, um, it's to share the gospel with them. Romans 1.16, because the power of God is by sharing the truth that Jesus is the Son of God, that he was sent by the Father. We are in need of forgiveness. The way that God provided forgiveness for the sins of the world, of any faith system, is through one way, and it's Jesus. And let me tell you about how Jesus changed history. Let me tell you about the truthfulness of Jesus, and that we can actually be confident that the truth claims of Jesus are true, not just historically, evidentially, um, but also internally we know because the Holy Spirit testifies. So there's a lot that could be said. I would encourage you to look at Psalm 96 verse 5 that says, all the gods of the nations are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. That word for idols literally translated means non-existent things. So if a neighbor or a friend is trusting in a false god, they're trusting in something that ultimately can't save them. That's a problem. So Thank you guys so much for your time today. If you want some more resources, I have a page up here for leaders, uh, for your leaders. If you want to take a picture of them, get them out to your students. I also have magazines up here if you want to grab magazine leaders to then discern whether or not your students can uh, handle the content. Thank you.